0: from the Refugee Study Centre. To find out more, please visit (laughs) www.rsc.ox.ac.uk. Okay, good evening. Uh, Welcome all. Uh, I have to start with a reminder that uh, uh, next Wednesday, Uh, will be the day of the annual Elizabeth Colson Lecture at which uh, Professor Alessandro Mansouti of uh, uh, the Graduate Institute of International Development Studies in Geneva will be speaking. So, uh, which means that actually this event tonight is actually the last in our short but uh, intense and uh, uh, extremely interesting series uh, of presentations on the future of the common European asylum system. Um, and in order to round this off, we have the pleasure of having tonight with us uh, Professor Hélène Norbert who is Professor of International Law at the University of Westminster, having previously held lectureship at Bristol, Exeter and Brunel, and actually having held also a visiting fellowship here at the Refugee Studies Center in nineteen ninety-nine. Hélène is a regular consultant for the Council of Europe, served briefly as a protection officer for UNHCR as well. She has published numerous books, articles on refugee laws and human rights, including Seeking Asylum in ninety five, The Limits of French National Law, co-edited with Guy Goodwin Gill a couple of years ago, and International Refugee Law, uh, also published in 2010. There's actually a uh, book coming up Uh, at Cambridge University Press that Hélène is co-editing with um, uh, Jane Macadam and Mary-Hélène Fullerton and I mention it because she will probably refer to it in her presentation today on the global reach and global impact of uh, European asylum law. She has also co-authored a number of interdisciplinary publications, including International Law and International Relations, co-authored with David Armstrong and Theo Farrell, which is now in its second edition. So it is really a pleasure to have Hélène with us tonight to speak about the the Transnational Refugee Law and the uh, SEAS. so i'll give you the floor now hélène and a reminder to all of course we'll have some time for questions and answer after afterwards and uh, of course a short reception will be held after the lecture and the discussion if everybody needs so Hélène, it's up to you thank you jean
1: francois Um, so yes this evening i'll be talking about two of my research projects one that ended um, and I'll be talking quite substantially about this one, which ended about two years ago, and then I'll link it to my new project, which I wish will be picked up by CUP, but at the moment is on the review um, with CUP and Touchwood. It will go as planned. So, really, the focus is transnational refugee law within the EU and beyond the EU. Um, so. As a general introduction, since the mid-20th century, the boundaries between international and domestic and between state and non-state have steadily eroded. Now this is not simply in terms of the proliferation of international rules with a growing domestic effect. It is also in terms of law, and international law in particular, and practice, in one state, shaping the law of another state. And this is generally done through transnational connection or trans-state connections. So I'm trying to get you to look at the presentation tonight in terms of horizontal links across state boundaries. Horizontal links between legislators, regulators, judges, and interest groups. And these are increasingly shaping how laws are framed, interpreted, and applied. This has led some international scholars um, working from the American liberal tradition, particularly Anne-Marie Slaughter, to declare the state of an emergence or the emergence of a new world order based on a complex web of transgovernmental networks. And in her book and other work that she's written, the European Union is often held as the prime example for this development, and indeed of the future trajectory in this world order. So in my presentation, I would like to explore the prospects for a transnational legal order in the context of refugee law in Europe and beyond. Now just to clarify, a transnational approach to law invites attention to the actions of and the links between non-state actors and also to the transborder effects of national and regional legal institutions. This paper therefore challenges the traditional approach to European law, that is the European integration approach and to international law, that is the vertical approach. And I will start by looking at a key issue in the establishment of the common European asylum system, and that is the challenge of convergence. Yes, that's one. the one. Challenges uh, of convergence and the necessity of a greater transnational judicial dialogue within the European Union. Now, since the Single European Act of 1985, but more precisely the temporary submit of 1999, EU states or EU member states have committed themselves to building a common European asylum system. That is, a common system based on legislation, common legislation on asylum, And this is to be built on trust and shared understanding as these have been recognized by the European Commission as necessary elements for any common system to work. The interpretation and the application of these new laws depend to a large extent on national judiciaries. So I argue that the success of harmonization substantially depends on the development of common judicial understandings, principles and norms concerning refugee matters. A comparative approach by judges appears to be essential for the development of a coherent system, that is the common European asylum system, and for this to happen, a transnational judicial dialogue resulting in the use of each other's case law must exist between European judges. Not because it is binding, but because the 27 member states, or more accurately, 26 minus, uh, 26 because we minus Denmark, because these member states are engaged in a common endeavor, and indeed, might find it useful to refer to each other's decisions. In Europe, this debate has traditionally focused on a three-dimensional dialogue. First, the dialogue between national judges and European judges. By this, I mean the European Court of Justice or the European Court of Human Rights. Secondly, dialogue between the European judges themselves. And finally, the dialogue between national judges of the different member states. That is the transnational dialogue, and my research has focused on this last dimension, namely the dialogue between national judiciaries, simply because scholarship to date has focused on the first two dimensions. Some work has been done on the dialogue between national judiciaries, but not in the area of refugee law, and yet what is so new about the liberal suggestion of an emerging transnational legal order is precisely the importance and the role of horizontal networks of policymakers, regulators, but in this case, judges. The American liberal tradition in international law has long promoted the role of non-state actors and progressive values in the world legal order. More recently, the emphasis has been on the role of transnational networks of government officials alongside the traditional place of states. These transnational networks and processes clearly contribute to international normative activity. They also contribute to a changing conception of the world less dominated by a vertical notion of international law and domestic law. Anne-Marie Slaughter, in particular, identifies the existence of a growing judicial globalization phenomenon, whereby judges around the world are increasingly talking to each other and citing each other's decisions. And this, she argues, means that we are witnessing the gradual construction of a global legal system. This global system is not just vertical as we used to know it. For instance, when the International Court of Justice or the European Court of Justice gives a judgment to an opinion, which national courts then apply. Rather, it is much more complex and messier with vertical and horizontal networks of national and international judges. Refugee law offers a particularly interesting case study because it has evolved mostly under the influence of judges. Furthermore, refugee law lacks an international court, competent to provide a common interpretation of the Refugee Convention unlike in the area of human rights, for instance, thereby leaving it to the contracting state, ultimately to interpret the Refugee Convention. In sum, refugee law offers tremendous opportunity in terms of seeking a greater transnational judicial role. There is some evidence of transjudicial activity in refugee law among senior appellate judges in Commonwealth countries, for example, in the form of citations. These have been noted by academics such as James Hathaway and Deborah Anker. However, this trend is less in evidence outside the Commonwealth. And eight years ago, at the European chapter of the International Association of Refugee Law Judges in a meeting at Edinburgh in 2004, the Association's own estimates was that there was a problematic lack of cross-referencing between European countries. And my research has sought to evaluate and explain the extent to which this is indeed or was indeed a problem. And I have focused on a key element of a transnational European legal dialogue namely the use of foreign law by national judges when making their own decision on asylum. In a pilot project, I looked at two member states, France and the United Kingdom, as representative of key differences in legal tradition and culture within the EU in terms of civil and common law divide. The scope of the inquiry was extended to seven of the member states in a parallel project co-led with Guy Goodwin-Gill. And the seven additional member states were Belgium, Ge- Germany, Denmark, Sweden, Ireland, Italy, and Spain. Both these projects were funded by the Nuffield Foundation and the British Academy. The findings on the UK and France comparative study was published in an ICLQ article at the top there and the findings of the overall countries were published in the book down there of which you've got a picture. Now at this point I'd like to mention that of course the Court of Justice of the European Union has an important role to play. And so will the new Euro- um, ESO, uh, European Asylum Support Office. But I see the role of the national judge as crucial in this enterprise. And this is because the procedure for preliminary ruling allows the national courts and tribunals of the member states in disputes that have been brought before them to refer questions to the Court of Justice of the EU about interpretation or validity of EU law. Also since the Treaty of Lisbon, any court at any level or tribunal may refer. So this might trigger delays. But the problem in all this is that the Court of Justice is not Competent to decide the dispute itself. Ultimately, it is for the national court or tribunal to decide the case in accordance with the, court of the Luxembourg Court's ruling. As for the European Asylum Support Office, its role is limited to improving the quality and convergence of member states' decision making, and more generally, to enhance cooperation on asylum between the member states. It is not to adjudicate on divergent interpretations. So my research argues that national judges are key players in the establishment of this common European asylum system, and that greater transjudicial activities, such as the use of each other's jurisprudence on asylum, ought to occur for this system to work. And what I'm presenting this evening is a very brief summary of the empirical findings. And I'll focus, because of lack of time, on France and the UK. But I'll make very brief references to other EU countries. So starting with the empirical findings, an examination of the case law in the nine countries surveyed, and that's up until 2008, revealed that national judges pay very little attention to how judges in other member states decide issues of interpretation and application of the 1951 Refugee Convention. In France, only one uh, decision was found, and it was a decision of the National Asylum Court from 2001, which made explicit reference to such jurisprudence. However, the case of other EU countries was cited in the supporting documents uh, of a dozen about of cases of the National Asylum Court. But this is out of thousands of decisions. And in two conclusion, uh, conclusions of the rapporteur public of the Council of States, um, we found references to such jurisprudence over this period. The UK was slightly better, seven instances were found where judges made explicit reference to the jurisprudence of other EU countries in their decisions. Three before the and Immigration Tribunal, one before the Court of Appeal, and um, three before the House of Lords, now the Supreme Court. There was also other elements, or evidence of other elements, of foreign law. um, Particularly references to legislation and administrative practices across the member states were used by British and French courts. Looking at the other seven countries, an examination of their case law uh, revealed similar results There was no instances of courts or tribunals citing and using other EU countries' cases. Ireland appeared as the only country where evidence was found of the Irish courts drawing upon decisions of the British courts, both as interesting and persuasive authorities. So these findings beg the question, why? what explains this lack of transnational use of each other's case law. And the explanation consisted of rational explanation and a more socially based explanation. So first I concentrated on language and found that language was, whilst obviously an obstacle uh, for some judges, was not an insurmountable or major obstacle. For instance, the French courts, insofar they referred to foreign law, uh, did not show a particular preference for the jurisprudence of other French-speaking countries. Whilst there is a preference amongst the British courts for Commonwealth case law, British courts have, for a number of years, had access to English translation of key decisions by non-English speaking foreign, foreign courts. Time constraints, on the other hand, was found as a particular problem and quite acute at the level of first appeal, where decision makers often have just a matter of days, if not hours, before considering an asylum claim in court. However, the higher courts don't have such a time constraint. Access was found to be a considerable barrier. Um, Both France and Britain offer good access, good public access to refugee case law, but access is less good as in many other European countries. And therefore that restricts the ability of the French and British courts to easily get hold of these decisions. Now of course this element is very much the purpose of the new uh, European asylum support office of course Um, but if anyone is interested there is now also an excellent website which only appeared about a year ago um, which is the asylum law database so it's a European database of asylum law it's a project that is funded by the European uh, Refugee uh, Fund and is also supported by the Irish Refugee Council and ECRAE. And it is extremely user-friendly and it has the translation of all the key decisions from most courts in Europe. Training, in both France and the UK, there is little attention to foreign law in the training of refugee law judges. Although there is now, of course, development in the training in the new EU laws on asylum. And these provide a kind of exchange of key principles and good practice between judges. I then concentrated on further explanation to be found in the social perceptions about the non-usefulness of foreign decisions, resulting in a default rejection of foreign jurisprudence. Now, these social perception, for instance, a decision is not worth considering, are produced by culture. And they would create an exaggerated sense of the barrier to dialogue. And it is here that we found the most profound barriers in both France and Britain, but in other countries as well, to the use of foreign jurisprudence by refugee law judges. Now, it is notoriously difficult to recover culture and trace its causal impacts on social outcome, in this case, the use and disuse of foreign law. So I adopted a three-step approach. The first step was to assess the extent to which the style of legal reasoning provides possibilities for inclusion of foreign jurisprudence and looking at france and the uk we can see a stark contrast between the stripped down almost mechanical reasoning of french courts and the expansive judgments of the british courts the latter provides far more possibility for reference to a variety of sources whereas in the former There is no expectation, let alone space, to do this. The second step was to explore the mentality of judiciaries in both states. And in particular, in terms of the willingness to draw on foreign jurisprudence in deciding asylum cases. And here again, there was a sharp contrast between French courts, which only considered binding sources of law, and British courts, tend to look at a wide variety of sources of persuasive authority. Hence, British courts are open to including foreign jurisprudence in their judgments, whereas French courts are not. Here we may also note the difference between the adversarial system and the inquisitorial system, where in the case of the former, the judiciary is is more dependent than elsewhere on the material that is placed in front of them. But many scholars, in fact, agree that judicial mentality constitutes an important obstacle to real harmonization between civilian lawyers and common lawyers, even on the basis of common texts. And I'm referring here to the work of Pierre Legrand. And the finding in all nine countries that we were looking at confirmed this view. This was based on interviews and questionnaires in most countries. In all nine countries, there was a general belief amongst judges that other EU countries' practice is not worth referring to. The reasons for this belief varied from one country to another. And you can read the book. Uh, to, <laughs> to get more about this. But I move on now to the third step of my approach. This was to a step to explore the domestic dynamics surrounding adjudication of asylum cases. And in particular, I was looking for evidence of other actors that might encourage the courts to consider foreign law. In both France and the UK, academics and refugee organisations are, of course, involved. Um, And they play a role in the asylum process. But more specifically, my research showed that academics are more interested in refugee law scholarship and more involved in asylum cases in Britain than in France whereas refugee organizations appear to have an increasing role in both countries. So what is the challenge ahead when it comes to the common European asylum system? And what are the implications of these findings? Well, prior to the EU legislation being adopted in this area of asylum and refugee law, This area of law was primarily regulated by the Refugee Convention, that is, an international treaty, and by domestic legislation. The Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties provides for state practice, including court decisions, to be taken into account when interpreting a treaty provision, such as the Refugee Convention, and you refer in particular to Article 31.3b and Article 32 of the treaty. And I guide you also to the concluding chapter of the book, written by Gad Goodwin Gill, which is precisely about these issues. The British courts have often made use of these two provisions but they have tended to concentrate on state practice of Commonwealth countries. So from the practice of countries outside the EU. The adoption of key directives and regulations in this area is forcing the judiciaries in both France and the UK and more generally across all EU member states to look at state practice within the EU. And here is where the real challenge lies ahead for European judges. Whereas in the past, judges were free to consider or not state practice from countries as far afield as Australia or Canada, the creation of a common European asylum system now require them to look at state practice from neighboring countries. And this means that a whole new kind of transnational activities or trans-state activities based on reciprocity and trust between national courts and which are conducive to dialogue need to occur for this system to work. Are there grounds to believe that such dialogue will develop. Well, I am optimistic. Recent case law in the UK, Germany, and the Czech Republic indicate a slight but noticeable increase in the pattern of references to asylum decisions from other EU member states. Now these are mostly driven by the application and of the qualification directive. In all three instances, these three cases, the International Association of Refugee Law Judges as a network operated to produce convergence towards a liberal interpretation of asylum law. However, it is possible that the transnational judicial dialogue may result in convergence towards more restrictive interpretation of other aspects of asylum. So I'm now gonna look at beyond the EU. Because this new common asylum system also has the power to influence the law and practice of states worldwide. As it stands, Europe has the most advanced regional protection regime compared to other regions. The European Union as a regional institution of 27 member states, okay, minus Denmark, 26, includes some of the most developed and powerful countries in the world and it is supported by the authoritative voice of the Court of Justice of the European Union. Now this system is bound to exert considerable considerable influence beyond Europe. In a collaborative project on the global reach of European refugee law, which is ongoing and which Jean-François Durieux, present here, is one of the case study chapter. In this project I raised the question, how has the European protection regime, the common European asylum system, influenced national refugee law and protection practice around the world? Drawing on socio-legal and international relation literature, constructivism in particular, on the diffusion of norms, nine case study authors were asked to assess the extent of influence, partial or total, as well as to determine the processes whereby emulation of the European protection regime has occurred. For rational reasons, need to succeed, or for social reasons, the need to conform. But more specifically, authors were asked to consider two basic emulation drivers. Firstly, new challenges and uncertainty. The idea being that when states are faced with new challenges and are uncertain about how to tackle them, they go and fish for ID. The second driver for emulation is reputation and professional standards. States are concerned about their reputation, especially in terms of being modern and professional. And this produces a tendency to emulate professional standards, codes and etc. from the most powerful and advanced states. State emulation is also a process of norm diffusion. And here constructivist theory is particularly useful in pointing to three facilitating uh, elements. Firstly, the degree of fit between the foreign norm and the local requirements, politics, law. In other words, the context. Secondly, the presence and role of transnational legal or advocacy networks in transmitting these foreign norms, and thirdly, the role of advocacy groups and other stakeholders in pushing for the normative change from within the country in question. Now, this research project is coming to an end and hopefully will come as an edited volume with uh, Marilyn Fullerton and Jane McAdam as co-editors. And although not all chapters have been submitted, there is clear evidence already that partial emulation in most countries selected in the project has occurred. Oh yes, I forgot a slide. I'm sorry. And I'll take the example of Latin America and then Australia. Looking at Latin America first, this was a chapter uh, d- uh, written by David Cantor at uh, the School of um, Advanced, Studies. Advanced Studies. Thank you, University of London. <laughs> and he reveals his chapter reveals a history of partial emulation of European asylum practices by Colombia, Ecuador, Panama, and Venezuela. The charter focuses on European accelerated status determination procedures. These have recently been adopted by these four Latin American countries as a form of admissibility screening. In other words, in order to prevent access to the refugee status determination process. The pattern of emulation in this chapter has been described as intriguing, with Panama taking the lead in 1998, but with Colombia, Ecuador, and Venezuela adopting these new measures only much later, 2009, 2011, 2010, respectively. The main driver, seems to be new asylum challenges in the region, fueled by uncertainty surrounding the ident- identification of new kinds of forced displacements. Namely, the dramatic increase in the number of Colombian refugees, as well as irregular migrants from Africa and Asia. Two key facilitators were identified in this European influence, First was the compatibility, or the fit, between Latin American and the Spanish legal system, as well as, of course, identical languages, which made, has made Spain, the Spanish legal system, or Spain, a direct source of inspiration. And secondly, the UNHCR doctrine, as well as its expanding role in the region. The chapter on Australia, written by Jane McAdam, reveals equally a complex picture of partial emulation of European notions in the Australian legislative framework, as well as some judicial decisions. And this is the case particularly concerning complementary protection, where EU law and practice on subsidiary protection appears to have played enormous influence in Australia codifying its practice. And this is also the case of the notion of European safe third country. Interestingly, she notes, other practices considered bad uh, in the EU such as those relating to transit processing centers, which failed in the EU, also failed in Australia. And my current discussions with regards to these centers provide a striking illustration of the global phenomenon of refugee lawmaking. Indeed, there is clear evidence that Australia's specific solution, which was created in 2001, was in fact a source of inspiration for the UK proposal to create such centers in Europe. The Pacific solution was itself reminiscent of the US offshore processing of Cuban and Asian asylum seekers in Guantanamo Bay in the 1980s. Context processing centres, explicit evidence that Europe and particularly the common European asylum system was found that these, um, this system should be used as a model for Australian legislative change. These examples in the Australian chapters also clearly show that the local conditions, such as the absence of a Bill of Rights in Australia, but also the absence of a regional human rights treaty, like the European Commission on Human Rights, have played a crucial role. The result being that emulation from Europe is only partial, and emulation is purely driven by new challenges in Australia having to cope with an increased number of mixed flows of refugees. And then, McAdam's chapter goes on to identifying more clearly the facilitators, being the domestic courts, the Department of Immigration, submissions by NGOs, the UNHCR, and academics, before parliaments in committee hearings, during the development of legislation and policy and finally travel and personal connection for instance at ministerial level. Further examples of partial emulation can also be found in the chapter on Israel and in the chapter on Switzerland. That's hardly surprising. The United States also identifies emulation, although being the United States, it doesn't accept the fact that it is emulating from anywhere, since after all, it is the center of the universe. But nonetheless, partial emulation is found there too. So in conclusion, and to come back to the transnational legal approach, it appears to have limited application in the context of EU asylum law within Europe. In most EU member states, judges rarely use each other's decisions within the EU. This means that the influence of foreign law across Europe in this area is still minimal. There is limited transnational legal activity. But the transnational legal approach is important in highlighting a central problem in the emergence of a common European asylum system. The need for, and yet lack of, use of national jurisprudence across the EU. And here lies the usefulness of the transnational legal approach. The point is where traditional international law focuses on the role of the states in international lawmaking. in this case in the creation of the Common European Asylum System. The transnational law approach highlights the kinds of trans-state activities that need to be happening for this system to develop effectively and coherently. The role of networks such as the International Association of Refugee Judges, is proving to be key in this enterprise. Moving outside of Europe, the transnational legal approach becomes very relevant. EU asylum law and protection practice is diffusing. It is spreading. Pathways may be direct, one-way transfer, or complex path, reciprocal influence, or even re-export. Transnational networks like UNHCR clearly play an important role in this activity. But so do a variety of other actors. Local requirements, the context, is key in understanding the extent to which states outside the EU emulate European law and practice in this area. Crucially, this picture of diffusion and partial emulation should enable us to reach a better understanding of international protection in terms of the relationship between international norms and national law and practice across the world. Thank you.
0: For more information about the different ways you can stay updated and engaged with the work of the Refugee Study Center, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk slash resources slash connect.